What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Today, in this episode 148, I'm speaking with Mate Wilder, founder and CEO of Pollination, a global climate change advisory and investment firm. He is also chair of the 15 billion National Reconstruction Fund set up by the Australian government and was previously head of Baker McKinsey's global climate change law and finance practice for 20 years, working with governments and bodies to accelerate the global net zero transition. Learn about Mate Sunrise in Sydney, Australia, being of British and Dutch heritage, with his parents having immigrated to Australia in the early 20s and a strong family history of working in the book publishing industry and the influences of his two younger sisters. You may be surprised to hear that Mate wanted to be a vet at age 18, fell into law and business. Questions I love exploring include his honours thesis at university in economics, focused on Antarctic legal issues. What made him join and then work at the law firm Baker McKinsey for 20 years? How he rose up to partner and his learnings of backing people? Climate solutions projects he worked on around the world including buying and selling UN-sanctioned carbon credits in 2004, helping Fiji host the COP attended by heads of countries, meeting Indigenous leaders for regenerative agricultural projects, and more. I was particularly fascinated by how some of the projects actually originate and the realities behind the scenes. We cover Mate's journey to being on and chairing various non-for-profit and government boards, including the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, and most recently being appointed to the National Reconstruction Fund set up by the Australian government. Important aspects of his story that are intriguing include the role his wife Jane has played in his life, and of course, how and why he decided to set up Pollination four years ago, their thesis, the first 12 months of setting it up, and COVID hitting, raising capital, and I love hearing about Mate's systems and habits to manage his time in his most recommended newsletter, religiously reads. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Mate Wilder, welcome to the show. Thanks. Lovely to be here. I'm excited to have you on. Why don't we start with some fun facts to set the scene? Where were you born and where do you live now? So I was born in Crown Street Women's Hospital, which is a which is about as Sydney as you can get. The hospital's not there anymore, but as my mother reminds me, it's, it was quintessential Sydney at the time. I still live in Sydney today. I grew up in, uh, in Mossman and my parents were there. And apart from living overseas for a while, I haven't really moved very far, so I'm still living there today and very close, cl- cl- close to where my parents were and are. Mm, and from a work perspective, what was your first job and what do you do now? I think my first job, I mean, as a kid, I had... A, had a couple of jobs like doing chemist runs where you, you know, rode your bicycle around to delivering medicines to, to houses that probably, probably doesn't exist these days. And then also worked in the local grocery store 
uh, in the local sports store. Just a lot of sort of those sort of uni jobs, I guess, in the local bottle shop um, throughout uh, sort of school and uni just to make some money. Nice. And how would you describe your various roles now? Um, a little bit different to that. So, yes, I've gone from, I guess, that those were, those were more, you know, earning pocket money. Although my one of my early jobs, which was working in a fruit store, the local fruit store with a crazy Italian fruitier, was pretty tough because he would, he would really work us hard and really push us around and, you know, and, and drag us by the ear and all that sort of stuff. And the reason I was doing that job was my father had said to me, I said to my father that I wanted to get a dog, and he said to me, "If you want a dog, you have to get a fence." And I and I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He says, "We need a fence around the house to keep the dog in. It'll cost two and a half thousand dollars." In those days, that was a lot of money. And so he said to me, "Okay, well, then if you want it, you've got to go get a job." So I said, "Okay." So he didn't actually believe that I would do it, but I went off to this local fruit store and I worked there for two and a half years, made enough money to build the fence, built the fence, got the dog. So, so that was, uh, I guess. <laughs> the reason I, I was sort of stuck it out so long, but yeah, and today I guess yeah, today I run a global climate change and advisory investment firm called Pollination. That's after a long journey of I guess twenty five years of being in the law and doing climate change law and policy, and along that journey also have had various board roles such as yeah, the, being the chair of WWF and being on the board of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation when it was set up and and chairing the Australian Renewable Energy um, Agency and various sort of government and NGO roles along the way. Mm, we will definitely get into some of those shortly. And as you know, the purpose of this show is to reimagine a high flyer. Is there a high flyer you know who you feel hasn't got the recognition they deserve? Yeah, it's interesting. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts about this. And I think, you know, I often think that, you know, there are many in this field that I work, which is climate change, you know, the basis of what we're trying to achieve is driven by the scientists. And many of those climate scientists, you know, work incredibly hard, are often subject to incredible attack without much respect. And I think, you know, the role that they play um, is absolutely critical and often doesn't get acknowledged enough. I think also, you know, you're often reminded that society is built on, you know, doctors, nurses, people who build bridges, engineers, and they're often under-awarded and under-recognised, yet we seem to you know, our capitalist system reward, you know, investment bankers who build synthetic products that, that then bring down the markets. And often, you know, that the way in which we view things is a little bit skewed, I think. Mm, totally, totally. And we will touch on climate later in the conversation. I know you've got some interesting views on it, so we'll leave that for later. Let's wind back the clock to your sunrise, as I call it, your childhood, and you mentioned growing up in Sydney. Talk about the influence of your parents because i think they're a mix of british and dutch heritage is that right that's right yeah my parents immigrated to australia in their early 20s and uh they my mother is dutch and my father's english and they they were married in europe but they came to australia actually originally just for two years but ended up staying thank goodness and so uh my dad actually had my entire family have been in book publishing. And Dad took a job in Australia. His brother was already here uh, with a publishing company. And the intent of that was to really, you know, explore Australia for a couple of years and see how that went. I think my father loved it from the beginning, the weather, the whole different sort of cultural attitude. My mother found it very difficult because coming from Holland, where she would say, you know, fairly sophisticated culture, coming to Australia was a bit of a shock. Her English wasn't as good as as it could have been, and I think it just took her a while to adjust. But I think 
yeah, I think uh, grew up in Sydney and and went to the local, you know, infants public primary school. I think I think one of the biggest memories from my childhood was, you know, growing up in you know in Mossman by the beach, and every afternoon after school, the only thing that mattered was getting every single kid in the neighbourhood to get up to the park to play football, uh, touch touch rugby. And so I just remember that my childhood was full of, you know, outdoors sport every moment until the sun went down and someone had to come and drag us home. You you put me in touch with one of your mates that you play a lot of sport with, and he said that when you both grew up in Mossman, it wasn't what Mossman is today. It was a rugged, different suburb. So what are your memories of the environment? How did that shape you into who you are today? Yeah, I think, you know, in those days, Mossman was considered way off the map because it wasn't on the train line. It was really mainly, you know, school teachers and and and, and I guess young professionals and others and, and families. It was also Middlehead near where we lived was an army base, sorry, a navy base, sorry. And the navy base had a lot of that headland locked up, but we as kids used to, you know, go down there and the the, the navy guards would let us go over the fence. We used to climb through all of the, the old ruins, which now are all public national park, open to the public. But, you know, we would spend a lot of time going through tunnels and in the bush and having a great time. And also just, you know, playing a lot of sport, going to the beach. I think it was pretty much an unknown secret in those days. But a lot of, I think every moment that we weren't at school, we were outside running around having a good time. Yeah, and I, and I believe you have, you have a sister, is that is that right? I have two sisters, yep. Yep, I have a, my, so after I was born, my parents had my my first sister. So mum, after I was born, mum was quite ill and but she, but she came out of hospital and she was okay in the end. But my second sister was born mentally handicapped. So I have a sister who's two years younger than me who's mentally handicapped. And she, for a lot of our, for a lot of our childhood, once she got too much from mum and dad, lived in the Blue Mountains in a home. So we'd spend every second weekend going up to the Blue Mountains to see her. And then I have another sister two years behind that who actually was adopted. So because after having Anna, who was my handicapped sister, it was probably a bit risky to have another child. So they adopted my sister, Kate, and and she's four years younger than me. And then my parents were going to also adopt a child from the Vietnam War, but it had been allocated a child to come across from Vietnam, but then, but then the government stopped the flight, so that didn't happen. Later on, they did actually sponsor a family from Vietnam who we became very close to and brought them to Australia. But, yeah, that's my, that, that, that's my, my siblings. The thing that fascinated me the most is you were kind enough to put me in touch with your wife. And one of the things she said is, Mate's always been the same person, even when he was a boy. Most of, most of us have phases associated with whose company we keep, but Mate's always been Mate. Talk, tell about, talk about that. Does that come from your parents or is that the environment where you've kept that consistency since childhood? Because I think most of us, it's human to evolve and adjust to the people we're with. I hope I have probably evolved and adjusted and matured a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> look, I think you know, at the end of the day, um, it's, a, it's a, look, it's a really good question. I think, I mean, you just are who you are, right? And I mean, you've got to just take what's in front of you and just deal with life and, and get on with it. And I guess for me, you know, a lot of my career and life has been about, in the later years, really about climate change and about making a difference. And so you're sort of pretty much focused on that. And as a career, you're focusing on what you're trying to achieve and, and and get through that. I think a very important balance to that is what you do outside work. 
And so for me, sport's a great release. Friends, and sport is not just about playing sport. It's about the mental side of it. So it's about having that. It allows you to switch off, to think about other things, to focus on what you're doing, to enjoy, I guess, that 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 adrenaline. And a lot of those, you know, the friend you spoke to, Dave, would, would say, you know, you can tell a person's character is, is re- often revealed in sport, you know, and how they, mm. whether they're on the ground, on the sports field, they're, you know, they play fairly or they respect the rules or they are just a good sport. And I think that's true of life. And so I think, you know, doing a lot of different things makes you a bit more grounded and not taking yourself too seriously. I think also, you know, my father had a great saying, which was the graveyard's full of in- in- indispensable people. And so never get ahead of yourself because, you know, there's always someone that will replace you and just try to always treat someone like you'll treat yourself. And I think if you live by those principles sometimes, you know, it hopefully brings you back to reality. Totally. And I, and I am curious, you're, you've been in the business world for some time now and you, I think you said to me when we spoke last that your parents couldn't afford private school, but I think you went in the latter half of your schooling years, if I'm, if I'm correct. Please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. There, what was the relationship with money growing up? Because uh, you does that give you a sense of humility and groundedness as well? Because you growing up, life wasn't as easy. Oh look, I think my, I mean, my parents were, were were fairly well off. I mean, we we lived a, a nice existence. There's no issue there. I think, yeah. I mean, in the early years, I didn't go to private. School. I went to the local infant school, primary school, high school, which I loved. It was great. Lots of friends there. I think my father was always about opportunity and when you get an opportunity in life, you should take it, even if it sort of confronts you a little bit. And so I was very happy, you know, I was at Mossman High School in year 10, very happy. My father came to me and said, look, I want to take you across to, 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 to Scott's school on the other side of the harbour. I said, why are we going there? He said, oh, I've just got to go and chat to them. Okay, so, so we go across and have a chat, unbeknown to me, Apparently, I'd won some scholarship for the last two years to go there. And uh, and I wasn't really very keen on that idea, uh, particularly because they had cadets as well, and that also really didn't appeal to me. But nonetheless, just down the road was Cranbrook, where my cousin had gone, and my dad decided to go talk to Cranbrook and say, oh, my son's got a scholarship uh, to Scots, but he's, you know, he might be keen on Cranbrook. What, what do you think? And went down there, had a discussion, and... Of course, you know, all unbeknownst to me, this is all going on. I'm thinking, why on earth am I here? But anyway, I went down, walked down to the Oval, saw this great rugby team playing on the, on the field. Uh, and I thought, God, those rugby colours are crammed much better than Scots. And, and it was a school that was half the size of Scots. It was no cadets. It was very liberal. And my dad said, look, there's an opportunity for you to come here. We, can't afford, we couldn't have afforded it, but there's a scholarship for you. Are you interested? I said, oh, not really, but okay, why not? Just give it a crack. I think a lot of people were quite amazed because in those days, a lot of kids were going from private school to public school. So for me to leave Mossman High School, where I was actually doing pretty well academically, to go to a private school where not only did I have to wear a uniform, but I had to do exams, was quite a quite a confronting change and make a whole lot of new friends. But you know what? At the end of the day... It was a life experience, and I got a different set of life experiences out of it. And, yeah, I mean, it was worth doing. I mean, and so it gives you a different perspective on life. And it was a lot more hassle. I had to go across the harbour to school every day and all that sort of stuff rather than just walking up the street. But you Yeah, know, early, early wake-ups. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's part of life's tapestry, and you, and you learn from experiences. Mm. I, I did get told again in my research that if I read the quote, 
Mate was never top of class, but was very determined and driven and always street smart. So I'm curious at 18, what was, what was success? What was the dream at 18, given you've got this drive and resilience to just get on with it? I really wanted to be a vet. I really liked animals and really liked wildlife and that sort of stuff. And so the, well, the idea of being a vet was quite attractive to me, but it wasn't particularly, uh, let's say chemistry and physics were not my strong point. I was much better at English, uh, geography, those sorts of subjects, and also economics. And so, you know, in the end, I went off down the economics route. My father had taught me how to gain a book publishing because I think that, as I said to you, the entire family, including my grandfather, my father, my uncle, cousins, were all in the book, book trade. And he said that was not an industry you should go to. He said you should get a profession, which you can then – you've always got that to fall back on. After you get your degree, go do whatever you like. But I think that was sort of genuinely the um, – the 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 feeling so yeah i mean i think you know you i'm sort of i'm convinced you never really know what you want to do you just go along the journey and see what happens and i think that's pretty good advice and i think you know i did an economics degree that led to a law degree that led to a law degree a master's degree it's just you just sort of go on that journey and things just happen Totally. I mean, I always say that's why I do this podcast because I'm figuring out what I should do with my life and I'm asking what you've done with yours. So <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I, I do want to ask on that on that law and economics. I, I noticed in my trusty old LinkedIn tells me, so you studied economics first and then you had a period of work before you did the law degree. Is that right? No, no, I did. I did an economics degree and then an economic honours degree and I, uh, at Sydney University. And then, and then I had thought about what to do next and my dad said, oh, you should try law. I said, okay. So, again, another case of being at Sydney Uni, applied to Sydney Law School, got in. But then in the end, uh, my dad said, you should, go to, you should go and try something different. You've been here. You should go somewhere else. So we drove down to ANU. A bit of a theme emerging here. Drove down to ANU, had a look around, applied to ANU, got into law school there, lived at college, did a law degree at ANU, um, which was graduate law. So that was three years. And then at the end of that, um, applied for a scholarship uh, to go to Cambridge University and got a scholarship to Cambridge where I did a Master's of Law. I'd actually, my honours thesis in economics and in law had focused on Antarctic economics and Antarctic legal issues. So I was very keen to go to Cambridge to what was called the Scott Polar Research Institute to do quite a deep dive into Antarctic and polar studies because I had a fascination with that. I ended up getting the Cambridge scholarship for the LLM, not the MPhil. So I ended up doing a law degree at Cambridge, but did my master's at the Scott Polar Institute. So I sort of got a little bit the best of both worlds. And then after that, after I'd done that, I travelled for a while, then came back to Australia and started work at the law firm Allen Allen and Hemsley. Fascinating. And that I'm assuming that law role was more traditional law. It was in climate law at Allen's, right? Uh, no, so I did basically my sort of focus was a lot of international law um, during my studies. When I came back, and part of that was environment as well. When I came back to Allens, I went into the environmental law area of Allens, which was still a relatively, I mean, it, it was established, but still, you know, it was still in its development. I was very fortunate to work with three extremely good partners there. One was um, Gerald Cripps, former uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Noel Hemmings, former ju- Justice of the Land and Environment Court, and another mentor, Andrew Beatty, who was there as well. So those three were, were, were you know, three of the leaders in the field. So I had a very good learning there 
for the five years I was at Allens. And then you went to Baker McKinsey and you were there for 20 years. So tell me about that. Like how does one stay at a law firm for 20 years? You must have been energized for that 20 years. Yeah, so I I was at Allens after five years and I'd been doing a bit of work also in the renewable energy space and I was keen to sort of see how I could take at that stage, the whole climate issue was developing, international law field around environmental law was developing, so I thought I would do something different. I was interviewing for a couple of jobs, actually, one at the International Finance Corporation in Washington and one at an NGO um, in London called FIELD, the Foundation for International Environmental Law and Development, which would have been a salary of about £16,900 a year. I'm not quite sure how that would have worked rent-wise. But anyway, I, was be, I sort of pretty much advanced quite a long way in those two jobs. And then I got a call from one of my former uh, friends who had joined Baker McKenzie and said, Baker McKenzie is setting up a, a global practice in sort of international law focused on sort of human rights, trade, environment. And I remember at the time I sort of, I was on holidays in in France on the freeway in a car and I got this phone call. Anyway, I thought about it. I said to him, okay, well, if we can actually do A, B and C, then I'm, I'm interested to do it. Went through a process and ended up joining Baker McKenzie. We had, although the idea was to do an international law practice, the truth was trade law was pretty well developed. Human rights law was developing and was an area of its own. But the international environmental law, and particularly climate change law, was a new area that was growing rapidly. And, you know, there was the new textbooks and seminal texts about that area were just starting to come out. The climate change negotiations were, we were up to about COP6 at that stage. So it was very early on. And so there was a real opportunity to really double down. Now, when we did that, a lot of people, most clients didn't really believe in climate change. I think it was an issue. So we built a practice doing a lot of international work for those companies and those governments that really did believe in the issue and from there it grew. And I think, you know, the reason, to answer your question, why it lasted so long for 20, why I was there for 20 years, I mean, climate change is an issue that's not going to go away. It's only accelerating. Our work, um, as we worked on this, became more and more innovative. I think the field matured more and the need for what we do, what we did became much more important. But I think, you know, by the time, as I went on during that journey over that 20 years, and, you know, the firm was fantastic because Baker McKenzie being an American firm, originally highly entrepreneurial, basic attitude was, we don't really mind what you do as long as you make money. And so that's why we made, we made lots of money in the practice and it wasn't a problem. But I think that as in the last sort of five years or so, there was a bit of a, I'd often have clients would come see me and say, look, I'm really... I've got this great idea and if you just can tell me how to do it and you can take me along to a couple of investors and you can get me some money and you can do a few other things um, and mentor me, I'll give you a couple of thousand dollars of legal work. I thought, this is crazy. I need to take equity in this business. It's not the right way to do this. So we're much better off building a business that could actually be much more innovative and be in the middle of the play as opposed to just simply advising the play. And so that sort of led to a desire to build something different. And, yeah, and I'd always admired people who were doing, you know, entrepreneurial things. And, and, and so off we went and founded Pollination. 
I, I want to put a bookmark in pollination because I do want to double click on some of your Baker experiences, both from a work perspective, but also your own personal learning journey. The first one is what you just mentioned just before is the balance between a law firm, which is very rules, regulations. And then you mentioned entrepreneurial and, and them giving you this long rope where you could do your own thing. So you were five years into your career, if I understand correctly. Is that defined as senior in the law industry or did they, did you come in at a time where they just said, Marty, you're a good guy, here's the rope, go run, go run the show? Yeah, look, I think the answer to that question depends. So in a law firm, by the time I left Allen's after five years, I was a senior associate. In those days, you know, if you were good, you could make partner after um, maybe eight, eight years or so, depending on the law firm. But I was, I was, I guess, senior enough to do things. I came to, when I came to Baker's, I said, look, I'm going to make this change. I do want to be a partner pretty quickly. And they agreed that, you know, give me six months to prove myself. And then if that worked, I'd go up for a vote to be a partner. And that was ultimately successful and got through. The people who were backing me at Baker's did, I guess, you know, to their credit, push me quite hard to go up to that because believe that I had a good vision and plan to do it. And so you're really backing people. And so I always have a philosophy in life that if someone's really, really good, no matter their level of experience, although they need to have, you know, a base level of experience, that should not be a reason to not promote them and you should not inhibit them. The best people do the best jobs. And so when I went to Baker's, I just went went there with my colleagues, just built the practice. And we just worked really hard for 20 years to just go really, really, to drive it really, to, to build something that I guess a lot of the world was not really ready for, but there were enough people who were requiring that advice that allowed us to grow that pretty quickly. And look, when in the early years of that practice at Baker McKenzie, we were the only law firm in the world that was really had a substantive legal practice doing this sort of work. So we're representing, you know, governments like Norway, from Australia, representing a lot of investment banks in Europe, doing carbon trading, doing a lot of investments in projects that would reduce emissions, helping governments draft climate change laws. We were doing pretty innovative stuff that was, you know, for the normal lawyer was not, you know, maybe not considered proper law, in quotation marks, if you're in a more traditional law firm. But it was a highly entrepreneurial legal practice that was trying to create the foundations of a new legal system. And give us a sense of, you touched on it earlier, climate in the early 2000s. I think climate now is is a big part of the conversation and there's a lot of young people interested in going into impact and climate because it gives a sense of fulfilment. But in the 2000s, maybe it, it wasn't. And I think you've done interviews where you've talked about how you were running uphill often in that time period. What were some of the projects you worked on? In, you mentioned COP6. I think we're now at COP26, COP28. Yeah. So, yeah, that gives a sense of how much th- things have changed, hopefully. But, yeah, long-winded question, but can you give us a sense of some of the projects you worked on that you look back on and you're like, it was a great learning or it was a highlight and things worked out? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that very early on, probably 2004, four, five, six, we did the very first contracts to buy and sell UN-sanctioned carbon credits. Those contracts were quite difficult because, you know, you're writing a contract for a commodity that is brand new in the market and you're having to think about all the issues that could go wrong in that contract. So that was that, that was pretty innovative. We 
a number of governments had set up carbon funds in those days to invest in projects that reduced emissions. We were setting up a lot of carbon funds. We were involved in a lot of legislation with governments to draft laws that were climate change laws. One of the experiences we had, which I remember fondly, was we worked for uh, a couple of years developing a sustainable development law for the Republic of Gabon. And that was the first sort of comprehensive climate, sorry, sustainable development law that a country had adopted that was particularly focused. And they're a country that's rich in biodiversity, although they've got some challenges at the moment. Also, later in our career, we spent, you know, three years helping the government of Fiji on there. They got the role to negotiate, uh, sorry, to, to, to be the host of the COP. We work with them, a team of us were in and out of Fiji working with the government to do that. That also led to a lot of really other innovative work around developing green bonds that could invest in infrastructure in Fiji. Also, a lot of my career has been spent on the road in least developing countries. So I spent a lot of time doing due diligence on, on, on projects and investments or working with governments to help them get better laws in place that drive more finance into communities who are challenging them climate change. So, you know, whether it's, you know, I've been very fortunate in that sense to have gone uh, with clients to, for example, Peru. I've been to Peru six, seven times, look at large-scale rainforest projects and to look at, as well, to look at community projects on the ground with regenerative agriculture and regenerative coffee planting and, you know, going up the Amazon for two or three weeks to look at projects and then come back. Those are unique, pretty unique experiences which you don't often get to do. And so when I look back and sometimes I think, wow, you know, you know, people would pay a fortune to go on these sort of holidays, but we are on the ground in these really remote areas with, with really uh, traditional Indigenous peoples and it's a great privilege to be able to do that. And the one thing that always struck me was no matter how bad the debate in Australia was about climate and certain politicians saying it didn't exist, wherever you go in those least developed countries, those Indigenous leaders would all, the first thing they'd say to you was how bad the climate was and how bad climate change is. Hmm. Hmm. Can, we, can we unpack one of those projects? I'm keen to understand how it works. To, do you, were you at Baker coming up with a list of projects and then you'd reach out to these countries and then go find them? Or would they come to you and go, hey, guys, we've got this opportunity. Can you come fly out to our country? Just give us a sense of the operational complexity. How would that project actually originate? It's a bit of both. I mean, in the case of, for example, early on when these governments were setting up climate change laws, we, we were known as the only real climate change lawyers around on a commercial level as opposed to an academic level. And so therefore we were known as the go-to firm. So people would come to you. In the case of the, the case of Fiji, for example, which was you know, much later in our career, where we got that particular piece of work to help the government there on the COP. What had happened was there was, you know, the, the COP was going on in Marrakesh. The US government had asked, there had been one country had asked to do to chair the next COP following Marrakesh and the US government wasn't particularly keen on that country. So they, you know, had, had canvassed other people. Fiji had put their hand up to do that with the US support and the EU support to do that because it was seen that to have a least developing country, particularly in the Pacific, where highly expensive, highly exposed to climate change around the COP would be a very positive signal. During the COP, the US government changed, the Trump administration got in and... Uh, and uh, the support 
the financial support that Fiji was going to give, they actually didn't get. Anyway, we then spoke to Fiji about we could, we could we would try to help them, would help them to try to raise some money to do the COP. We went through a, an interview process and a tender process to do that, ultimately got that and, and work with them. In other cases, you know, we our team at the moment is doing a lot of work in Kenya, helping the Kenyan government on drafting climate legislation. That work started off when we were at Baker McKenzie, but we went to the German government to, again, they have a have an international aid program. We applied under that program to get the funds to help the government in partnership with that with the Kenyan government to do that. So, you know, some, sometimes people just come to you, sometimes you go to them, but a lot of the times we actually would come up with a really interesting idea uh, because we've been working with the government. They say, we really want this done. Can you help us raise the funds? And we go out to philanthropy and try to get those funds. So it very much depends on, on, on what it was. I think what's particularly interesting about these stories is the constant change of people and culture. We, we talked earlier about Mossman and playing tennis and building friendships there, but here you're doing them in Kenya and Fiji and, and the Amazon. And we had a guest recently, Anita De Silva, who's the managing director for government at Oricon, and she said that was a big learning for her to adjust her approach to local governments and local communities and cultures. And I know you spent a lot of time on people and relationships and understanding the human what, what was that experience like? Like, did that really challenge you in a different way where you couldn't just be the Aussie bloke in Mossman or in Sydney? You had to really adapt and, and go into new environments where they didn't really care who you were and where you're from? No, not really. I mean, I think that basically one of the things you learn is that people are people and most people in the world are really genuine, really nice and really concerned about things. And, yes, sometimes there's a language barrier, but people are pretty genuine and you know, when you break it down, the issues they have to deal with are relatively simple. And if you're in a, you know, it's often a great honour and you need to respect it. If I'm in a, in, in an in a Indigenous community in the Peru Amazon and I'm being welcomed to that community, you know, that is a great honour and a great privilege for us to be into in their world. And I think, you know, having the respect and understanding that going in is really important also being briefed well beforehand, but I think, you know, in the climate space as well and the environmental space, and also you see this in a lot of the work I do with WWF, people have a common goal and a common mission. People really want to help, you know, save the planet. They want to help species. They want to reduce biodiversity loss. They want to tackle climate change. There's a sort of a commonality amongst what you're trying to do there. And you're trying to work together for the betterment of the planet. And I think... There's a bond that brings people together in that regard, which I don't think can be underestimated. I want to touch on, I want to spend a good a good chunk of the conversation on climate in a second, because there's a lot of aspects there that you can educate our audience on. Before that is, during Baker and McKinsey, you also got a few board roles and you became, I think, at Arena and then at CEFC. I'm curious, when was the first time you got a board role? What was that transition like to go from being inside the firm and, leading a team but now you've got an external role and you're more you mentioned earlier being entrepreneurial where you're sort of advising and you're coaching but you're not doing it yourself yeah i think uh so the first board role i had it was actually was was uh, president of an organization called traffic oceania when i was in my early 20s that organization was to manage the control of uh, i mean traffic was set up to stop the illegal trade of international wildlife and I sort of chaired that along with this very, very small team. I think later on going onto boards, 
I think the boards that I've been on have generally tended to be, uh, well, they've all been either not-for-profit or government roles, so that's the first thing, and that is always purpose-driven, and you either do it for public service or for or, or for uh, philanthropic service, not for, for, for making money. I think, you know, being on the board, I came into... Onto the board of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which was a new organisation being set up. It was really a startup at that point. Gillian Broadbent was the chair, and Oliver Yates was the CEO. Very dynamic environment, very supportive of government. But within six months, the government changed. We then had, a, we then had a, a Liberal government that was very anti the CFC and was trying to close it down. And we had threatening letters from shadow ministers prior to them getting into government. So that tests your resilience. And I think. The one thing I say about that experience is the board. It was an independent organisation. The board did come together very well to protect the organisation and fulfil our statutory obligations and to make sure that it succeeded. And in that sense, you know that I guess board cohesion and organisational cohesion is very important in tough times. I was then later on by the by the thing that the next government appointed after my, towards the end of my tenure on CFC to chair Arena. Um, Arena was the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, gave grants out. And again, just after I got on that, the government wanted to remove a lot of the funding from, from Arena and do a, a slightly readjust that with CFC. That was another sort of crisis moment for the organisation. I seemed to, yeah, get in these challenges and go through that, and that was interesting. And then it got on even keel and, you know, has done great things. I think at the end of the day, you know, when you're on a board... It's very important that as a chair or a board member, you're there to help guide and steer and mentor the organisation. It is not your role to be running the organisation or to be CEO. You're there to help with strategy and to help mentor the CEO. I think that's a really important point. I think sometimes people uh, mix that up. And that's, I think, you know, a, a really important thing. But if you can help an organisation steer it through both good times and bad times... That's, I think, really important. And also, I think, as a chair of an organisation, it's important to be in the background, not the foreground, you know, as a general rule, and I think that's also really important. So, you know, again, another organisation which I've come into the very end of my term chairing is WWF Australia, and that's been a, been a pretty interesting and fun journey. And the CEO, Dermot Gorman, is a, is a good friend, and... You know, that has been an interesting journey because over those 10 years, we've had to deal with very hostile governments. We've had the incredible bushfires in Australia. We went out very, very early when the bushfires happened to try to raise a lot of money for for helping to restore and protect wildlife as a result of the bushfires. We raised about $70 million um, globally, a lot through the network as well. And I think one of the really important things about that journey was that we actually managed to get most of the money out. So it's one thing to raise money. It's a lot even more difficult to actually deploy money. And so we were able to get, we've expended nearly all of those funds. And I think that's a great testament to the organisation and what they did, particularly when you see in the paper that some of the other organisations that raise money as well as the bushfires have not got very much of it out at all. I realise we've spent a lot of time on your work journey and there's a few more steps to come up we haven't really talked about the life journey along this way and i i believe you got married during this time as well and you met jane your wife at at a law firm is my my understanding from what i've been told and talk about that how did that i don't know what the exact question here is but how did that shape you because you've had all these work experiences and achievements and learnings but then there's also the life aspect and i know that for you is very important what's that been like is there a magic moment there that 
that also inspired you to continue doing these big jobs? I think that, so yeah, so I, I was working on the South Australian electric, electricity privatisation, which is sort of ironic because I'm not a, in favour of privatisation, but as a general rule, but I was I was from Allens in Sydney and she was from, a, Jane was from a firm called Arthur Robbs in Melbourne and a whole lot of us went to Adelaide to work on this project. I was actually doing a lot, a lot of the renewable energy work, which was really interesting. And we met there in Adelaide and... And, uh, and yeah, and after that, Jade moved up to Sydney and, um, and we've been together ever since and had two kids since then, twins who are now 21. Um, and, yeah, I think, I don't know, it's been, I think maybe Jane said to you that, you know, I haven't changed much. I think, uh, you know, relationships are really important in life. I mean, I think, you know, most of I mean, my parents had a you know, very strong, happy marriage. When my friends have a strong, happy marriage, I have a strong, happy marriage. I think having a partnership with someone who supports you on your journey is absolutely incredible. And I think, you know, Jane has done that and that's been, you know, that has enabled me to do a lot of things that, that, that uh, you know, may not have been as easy. You know, me being away often for long periods of time and looking after the kids is not the easiest thing to do. And she has been phenomenal in that. And I think, you know, relationships are about partnerships and I think it's about working together and you know going on that journey together and what and and, and actually enjoying it together I think it's really important mm, kudos to Jane that's a startup that's worked out and it's now a now a corporate <laughs> and uh, you used to, you had another startup which which I want to talk about 2019 pollination tell us about you I think you referenced it at the start where when I asked you about the roles you do now and you referenced the transition I spend a lot of time with founders and I found founders fascinating humans because it requires this inner belief and this willingness to go against the grain. You you mentioned all these experiences at Baker, you're there 20 years. You would have had many opportunities. You could have done many things. You could have been a, probably gone to government or you could have done some cool ambassador roles. What gave you the inner belief to go, I'm going to go at this again and I'm going to build something from the ground up? <laughs> I think that... It's a really good question. So I think, so the good thing about Bakers while I was there was that, you know, we were doing incredible work all around the world, always changing, always innovative, never getting bored, always doing something different. And so in that sense, you know, your ability to keep driving your own business in effect and, you know, and being quite successful at that was great. But I think there was always an urge in me to go out and do something different, be more entrepreneurial, and that had been sort of bubbling away, you know, for the last few years while I was at Baker McKenzie. Uh, and I think, you know, law firms, some are much more restrictive than others, but at the end of the day, a law firm uh, has to comply with, with law society rules. We have certain things that we do, giving advice, and that is how it should be, and that's very important. You know, there is one or two law firms in the States that do take a lot of equity in, in their clients, but as a general rule in Australia, we don't do that. And I think... I had I had, was seeing what was going on in the world with a significantly increasing shift of capital towards climate change, and I think while that was always talked about, you know, in 2015, 2016, it wasn't really happening. But we started to see a shift in sort of 2018, 19, and so I had written this business plan about how to, you know, for bakers actually how to drive, be more involved in the financial flows and that sort of stuff, but. The truth is it just wasn't something that could be done within the constraints of a law firm. And that's no criticism of a law firm. It's just a, a reality of what those organisations do. 
And so I think the view was, you know, well, maybe it's time to go and set something else up. At the same time, uh, the firm was talking to my co-founder, Tanya Sullivan, uh, about having him come in and do a lot of work on sort of corporate advisory. And again, that extension from law into corporate advisory for a law firm was also a bit challenging. And I said, met Tony and said, look, I'm going to, I'm thinking of doing this, you know, and I needed someone who had a finance background. He was based in London as well. And so having that combination sort of got it going. And I think sometimes, you know, people talk a lot about doing things until you actually get someone you can do it with and drives you and gives you that sense of journey. And then a couple of my other colleagues, as we were developing this idea, like Megan Flynn came in quite early and we're talking about what could be done, you start to get momentum and you start to believe. And so, you know, I had a sabbatical towards the end of the, at the very end of that time at Baker's during that sabbatical, you know, a lot of thought about what could be done and how it would be done. And, and then, you know, just crystallised and off we went. And, you know, I was very relaxed the whole time about doing this until the day I went to resign. And then I did resign to my managing partner, who was Anthony Foley, who was a great guy. And, you know, and I just was honest. I said, look, I just really want to do this. I want to do something else. That was the only day after doing that. I thought, holy shit, what have I done? But that only lasted about five minutes. And then, <laughs> and then off we went. And it, the journey just went from there. And I think... Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. It's challenging. It's I, I, Look, I worked really, really hard at Baker McKenzie, but that is nothing compared to what I'm working like at Pollination. It's just another level. But that's what founders do, and that's what you have to do, and you have to live and breathe it, and you have to go really hard. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And I believe you're four years into this journey now. I always love asking, what were the first six months like? Because I hope you'd agree the first six months as we send the foundation, the first 12 months with hiring the right people, setting the right structures in some context, choosing the name as you did with Pollination. And I think you'd mentioned to me last time that you brought a lot of people you'd worked with over the years. So you had that really trusting relationship and you knew their pros and cons. What, what was that first six, 12 months like? Like, did you have clear focuses or was it a lot of try things and see what works and double down on it? Actually, I think it's going to, I think in some ways it might be a strange word, but the first sort of six to 12 months was bliss, right? We'd raised our money. We brought a lot of our client base with us. We were focused on doing the work. We had a vision where we wanted to go and we were moving pretty fast. And then nine months in COVID hit. And, you know, you go from this sort of like environment where, you know, everything is moving pretty quickly. And we already on day one had a team in the US, London and Australia. And we were, we were, we were buzzing along. And then, as I said, COVID came in. And ironically, COVID didn't really slow us down. I mean, I think... Two things happened in COVID. The first is that we were forced to hire people who we knew. So you reached out to your networks and, you know, everyone's working at home and people start to join you. And it was sort of not that difficult, right? It was also very, very easy to get a hold of very senior people and organisations to have a chat about what we're doing because they were all at home and they were very happy to chat and relaxed. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we early on had an opportunity to do a joint venture with HSBC. This is about nine, ten months in. Again, all negotiated during COVID on, on Zoom calls. And this was to set up a joint venture with HSBC, which is called Climate Asset Management, which is a uh, an attempt to be one of the first global investors into nature and natural capital. And we spent, you know, six months working with them to set that up. Again, all during COVID. And so that was pretty exciting. And so I look back and think, yeah, it was a pretty interesting start to build a business in that space. But I think COVID ironically sort of helped a little bit 
because people were still trying to do things. And then came out of COVID and sort of went from there and raised some money. And then a couple of years ago, or actually 18 months ago, ANZ took a position in the Topco as well, which sort of consolidated it. Someone said to me the other day, I've done six startups. And when I'm in startup phase, I yearn for growth phase. When I'm in growth phase, I yearn for startup phase. <laughs> and that has sort of stuck with me a little bit. There's a little bit of that in the back of my mind always, you know. The startup phase is high adrenaline. It's fun. You know, you're going hard. The world's your oyster. There's nothing holding you back. Now in the growth phase, you know, we've just got to really, really make it happen. I would say, you know, thank God we're through that period of, you know, it, that first couple of years of will it work. Now it's about our focus now is on the, really how far fast can we grow. That that comment of grass is greener on the other side is, is unfortunately often comes up and I've seen that in my uh, my career is that when I'm in a startup, I'm like, I miss the corporate life. And when I'm in a corporate, I'm complaining, going, oh, I miss the freedom and agency. So I completely relate to to that. I So you mentioned about raising capital a couple of times. So does that mean Pollination's a startup where you raise a seed round and Series A? And I think you did a safe note a couple of years ago. Is yeah, that right? so we, yeah. yeah, so we, we started with a group of of high net with individual family offices who highly committed to the space and really believe believe in climate change and some of whom are incredibly active in climate change as well. So we raised 10 million US dollars at the very beginning. When we did the HSBC deal, we raised some more money to help f- f- fund that joint venture. We then did a Series B and uh, as a precursor that did a safe note into the Series B. And that was about 18 months ago. And now we're, in the, we're doing a Series C. So, I mean, for us, it's about, yeah, I mean, that, that raising capital is about uh, not just raising blind capital, but it's about raising capital for people who can help partner with us on the journey that we're going on and understand the vision. And so I think, you know, when we're doing that, and, and, and you know, it's interesting, there are, if you're preaching to a private equity firm, they look at the numbers really hard, they look at what you're doing, they want to come in, get into you, churn you up for four years and flip you. That's not really what we want. We want to, climate change is a long-term systemic issue that requires, you know, a long-term systemic um, response. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we can get to net zero much quicker than we're currently contemplating because we don't we're in real trouble but i think you know a partner like anz who came into the top co could see that they could see that by working with them it, you know it was really it was really important to them and us to continue to build this sort of journey towards solutions for climate change and sustainability i mean the one thing that's really important and you learn and i'm increasingly seeing as we go forward is that what's going to be critical to this whole transition is finance so you need money to fund the transition that money needs to be brave it needs to be i'm not talking about necessarily you know losing money i'm not talking about it needs to be brave and it needs to you know understand that there's a huge opportunity here and you need to drive that capital and unfortunately many of the super funds and the other large institutions that talk a lot about investing in this space won't do anything until it's completely de-risked so for us you know along the journey it has been working with capital that is more attuned to that thinking and understands the you know that they, you know, in the case of ANZ, they have many clients that are subject to this transition. And so for them, you know, understanding how they can help those clients is really important. But I think, you know, when you look at what the federal government in Australia is doing at the moment with the Net Zero Transition Authority and with the National Reconstruction Fund and with the CFC and other organisations, there's a key focus on, you know, on national economic reform now. 
Mm. Uh, I think the capital allocation point is is completely true. So we recently had a couple of super funds on this show and one of the things they said is, yeah, they don't see an opportunity in Australia for specialised funds rather than agnostic in, in venture but also private equity and then they want to wait till your second or third fund to your point of de-risking where they want to see the returns and then they want to come in and, and see the cream cream on the top. And I think part two to that is a question I heard the other day. I was talking to a prominent VC and he said, Vidit, climate, there's a lot of social opportunities, but where is the economic opportunity? If I'm going to invest, how do I make money off this? And I'm sure you've got a really crafted answer to that. Can you educate us? Where is the economic opportunity in climate? Yes, I would say that, and it depends on how you define climate, but I mean, to put it simply, governments around the world and Australia have made commitments to get to net zero by 2050. That that will increasingly be put under pressure to get to net zero by 2040. And when you see governments like California suing their large oil and gas companies to, to accelerate the transition, you know that there's a, there's a seriousness in the timeline and to bring that forward. This presents us with the biggest and most significant economic transition since the Industrial Revolution. And, you know, when you're looking just to take one sector, which is energy, if we want to decarbonise our global economy, that means reducing emissions from industry. And the only way to do that is through clean energy. That's going to require an incredible, massive global build-up of, of clean energy to transition out. And if we're going to get off fossil fuels and over time, we have to have alternatives and therefore, the level and opportunity of investment in this area is exponential. And I think a lot of people who say to me, oh, you know, there's no investment opportunity, they just don't understand what is coming. And when you look at the moment, and, and, and the truth of the matter is, it will require significant government co coordination and cooperation. And when you look at the, the US at the moment with the Inflation Reduction Act and how much they're pumping into the economy, the Europeans doing the same, you look at Japan with their 174 billion dollars of investment just to start into economic decarbonisation, look at what the Australian government's trying to do. There is a massive global momentum now around transforming the global economy. And yes, parts of the economy may not change, but I mean, I, I guess from my point of view, we'd rather be investing on the right side of the balance sheet than investing on assets that are likely to become stranded in two or three years. And I think that quite often people just don't really understand how significant the journey we have to go on is. So I would say, look, you know, at the end of the day, uh, part of the reason that you want to be successful in investing in the space is because you actually understand what's going on and you will build success and get very good returns for your investors. So for me, you know, what is key here is actually understanding what's going on in the macro environment and how things are moving very fast, but also acknowledging that that carries a lot of transition risk and it is quite volatile. But many investors will say their ability to understand and navigate the volatility is where the opportunity exists. I, I wonder on that. Uh, so I was at a um, investor roundtable yesterday with software software investors who, who don't really play in climate, but there were a few founders in the room who are building hardware climate solutions. And the topic of manufacturing came up. And one of the investors, or one name, who, who likes to speak his mind said that, yeah, Australia VCs, we don't see or private private equity, we don't see opportunity in hardware businesses. And one of the founders actually out of Cambridge, who you might know as well, he said Australia is lacking in education on manufacturing prowess. And in climate, we've actually seen as much as oil and gas is bad, they've shown how to build a commercially sound manufacturing business. You're the man in charge with the NRF. 
How do you look at that perspective where the perception is that Australian manufacturing and Australian investors don't understand hardware businesses? So I think at the end of the day, many people in Australia love to say it can't be done. They love to say it's too hard, it's impossible, they're negative, right? So one good example is I've just finished chairing the Victorian government's independent panel review of their of their climate target for 2035. And on that panel, we spent some time in Latrobe and down in Gippsland Latrobe, there is you know obviously a big focus on building offshore wind. When you speak to people, they say that'll never happen. It's impossible. It just isn't going to. It isn't going to be done. Yet when you're down there in Latrobe, people say, "Well, we want to manufacture part of the wind turbines in Victoria, because we can't get. We want to create the supply chain in Australia so that we can be guaranteed to build. We want to build the boats in Australia that will let let those those wind the, those offshore wind farms be built." We want to do a whole sort of industry ecosystem around the offshore wind and then create an export industry we can export. Now, whether or not that can be done, I don't have the answer to that at the moment. That has to be tested economically. But you need to think that it can be done and you need to test it and you need to try to build it. So I think, you know, we have great things in Australia like, you know, we have built some of the world's leading solar technologies and hardware and solar panels, built the internet, we've built a lot of other things, and they've all gone offshore. So part of the role of the NRF is to actually step back and say, you know, the world is rapidly moving in this space, you know, and if we want to have more solar in Australia, which we're going to need over time, and every other country is doing that, India, China, there's just simply not enough production. So there is a massive opportunity for us to build an entire ecosystem in certain in, in certain areas, and the NRF has eight areas it's focused on, from, from medicine to transport to healthcare to quantum, agriculture, energy, it's very broad, but you need to start believing that we can manufacture many things in Australia and we are manufacturing many things in Australia. So the thing then becomes is how do you connect those across that ecosystem so that you can actually build more comprehensive supply chains? Because if we don't do that, we're going to have a real problem. And I think one of the reasons the NRF was set up was that during COVID, we learned that supply chains were often difficult uh, to control and they will often be broken. And so, you know, there are many parts of the, of the renewable energy solar supply chain that are dominated by China. And on the EV side, you know, there are a number of countries that are dominating that. And so if you want to be a player and you want to supply your local market, you may have no choice but in the long term to do more manufacturing and more processing. And so I think, you know, you have to step back and say, you know, there is now an opportunity for us to reset the economy. We've ignored a lot of industrial policy for 10 years. There's an incredible... Um, amount of people who want to make this work and we've just got to come together and give it a crack yeah yeah to be to be continued it's a it's a really interesting topic uh last question before we move to final sprint to close us out is what, what i can sense through this is you do a lot of different things and i always say that we fall to the level of our systems and and time management and processes what are your what are your secrets Marty, on, on time management and priority management, given you're doing a whole raft of things? So I think, first of all, people often think I'm doing more than I actually am. So I think, you know, at the moment, I've really just got pollination and now take on the role of NRF, but we will get a very good CEO that will take that on. But I think at the end of the day, you've just got to be smart how you work. So first of all, um, one of the things I do, as, I, as you pointed out, I, I try to do at least an hour, hour and a half of sport every day, clear my mind and 
be a bit level-headed about the, the day forward. I think setting boundaries, knowing what you can and can't do, surrounding yourself with people who are better than you and you can delegate to and can run with things and you can really trust. I think that's really important. And I think also knowing when to say no. I would say early in my career, I was probably a lot worse at that. I was always, I was always probably um, trying to do everything. I think I've learned over the last 10 years that no, you should be much more discreet in what you do and don't do. Having said that, I do always have keep two, two hours or so aside a week for just people sometimes just ring me like a, someone in university or someone, you know, in a job who wants a bit of advice and wants to come for a coffee for 10, 15 minutes. I'll always do that because I think that, you know, if I can give back something to people whom are looking for guidance and advice, that's really happy. And so, so, so that's really important and, you know, it's really important to p- guide people. I mean, the irony about that is sometimes people come up to me and say, oh, I really appreciate you gave me this advice 10 years ago and this is what's happened in my career and I can often not remember who that is, but (laughs) it doesn't really matter. I mean, the more that we can help younger people and guide them to be better for society, the better we'll all be. Let's move into final rapid-fire sprint to close us out. Is there one non-work-related investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? I think probably family. Yep. Is there one thing you want to learn in the next six months? Oh, I want to learn everything. I always love learning. I mean, the great thing about where we're in at the moment is with the global transition, there's just so much to learn and there's so much we don't know. And so I think the reason that I've always enjoyed roles like Arena, um, CFC and now NRF is you just are learning all the time. You're challenged all the time. And I love being challenged. I love being out of my comfort zone. What, what are your learning habits? Like, do you spend time on YouTube or podcasts and read articles or is it more meeting people and that's your way of learning? Uh, I'd say it's meeting people. There's one or two subscription services I subscribe to and read. There's one called, which most people have never heard of, called Thunder Said Energy, which is one of the best subscription services and, and newsletters about technology, materials, etc. cetera, uh, by a guy called, called Rob West. It's a fantastic... And I listen to other podcasts and... And just talking to people, right? Just asking people questions, I think, is and getting feedback. So don't be afraid to ask someone a question about what they've done or why they're doing it and yeah, and, and learning from that. And last one, is there one person, a quote, that inspires you today? Yeah, that's, that's the easiest one. So the quote my father always gave to me was, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And that's from Edmund Burke, who was an Irish statesman. For me, one of the most important principles in life is always treat people the way that you would like to be treated, always stand up for people. And if you see, you know, injustice being done, stand up for it no matter the cost. And I think to me that's the most important thing you can do in life. And, you know, you just cannot stand by and see and see wrong done to people. Good note to end on. Martin Wilder, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much. Well, there you have it. That's my conversation with Mate Wilder in this episode 148. I love the deep dive into the important world of climate solutions and driving change. Mate's career journey and self-belief, being supported by his family and mentors along the way, and the value of just trying and giving it a go. I hope you enjoyed this episode 148. We're almost at episode 150. And as always, let me know your thoughts on the conversation. All my details are in the show notes, and I will catch you soon.